Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I am really excited today to dive into a topic we haven't touched on before. And I have a guest with us, Lauren Isford, who is growth marketing at Facebook. Lauren, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you give a quick background on yourself, the the topic just for people listening, the topic is we're going to talk about growth from the perspective of retail from beloved local brand focusing on her time at Blue Bottle Coffee. So Lauren, give some quick background on yourself and then we'll jump in. Yes, I have worked in growth marketing at three places. First at Dropbox, focusing on the self-serve business for trial conversion to Dropbox for teams or Dropbox for businesses. Then I was at Blue Bottle Coffee, which we'll speak about more today, focusing on scaling the e-commerce business there. And now I work on internet.org at Facebook. I've been in growth since the beginning, but I think for me, how I think about what I do is really taking products that already have proven product market fit and then scaling their customer base. So that could be bringing new people in with things like traditional marketing channels, or it could be the retention and upsell of the customers that are already on the product. So yeah, had a couple cool different experiences and also very excited to double click on Blue Bottle today because we learned a lot through our journey there. Yes, and I'm excited to dig in. And I'm especially excited because your background is like growth from a bunch of different perspectives in a way that I feel like most people are like myself. I'm just like growth in software and you're working on it from a bunch of different angles at some really cool places. So, you know, the reason that we're going to double click on the Blue Bottle software is one, a little selfish to myself because I feel like it's one of these things that doesn't usually get discussed in growth. And I just want to learn what that is like to consider you have these like physical products. How do you apply growth principles to that and retail? Like it just feels like such an interesting thing. And I know how much people love Blue Bottle. I've had a Blue Bottle experience before and, and had a really great time. So just like quick background on the Blue Bottle for those who are not in the world of San Francisco coffee shops and, and all that. Like it is a brand. And like I said, I've only been there once, but I've heard it so many times. And it's just one of these companies and brands. And Lauren, you can probably say this better than I can, that people just like have this such a strong love for. Do you have a better way of putting that? Yeah. So Blue Bottle um, has been around since the early 2000s. So already it's a little bit different than your typical startup in that it's been around for quite some time. It's a coffee business first and a retail business first. So James Freeman, the founder, was actually a local musician in the San Francisco area and then started selling coffee in the Hayes Valley neighborhood of San Francisco and opened one cafe. And he has such a beautiful eye and attention for detail that the brand he created around the coffee has become very beloved in the industry and even beyond. So you might recognize the light blue bottle logo that you actually see on cups that are sold by Blue Bottle because it just has become this ubiquitous symbol for the brand and also for third wave coffee. So if you haven't been to Blue Bottle, there are now many cafes that offer something similar, but it was really the first business to offer small batch, local, freshly roasted coffee And it tends to be in lighter roasts, in smaller portions, really focusing on the espresso. So this is really a retail business. And when I joined, we had about 10 cafes in the Bay Area. We were slowly expanding to New York. Now you can find Blue Bottle Coffee 
in Boston. You can find it in LA. There are also cafes in Tokyo and Kyoto and Seoul. So the brand has really expanded. And I think what's enabled Blue Bottle to become this much-loved coffee brand is really that you know you'll see elevated design. You'll have a really high-quality product really anywhere you go, whether that's in Korea or in the US. So I joined Blue Bottle not to work on the retail business, actually, but because we were building out and scaling our e-commerce business as well. And bluebottlecoffee.com, if you check it out, offers coffee that you can order as whole bean subscriptions. So you can you know, grind the beans at home and make a coffee. You can also order tools for making coffee at home. And there's some merchandise too, like mugs and some apparel. So that's the e-commerce business of Blue Bottle. And the goal is really to bring the coffee home that you already enjoy at the cafes. So when I joined the team, we were still pretty small, but we were really trying to scale that out. And in particular, to scale out subscriptions where you could have that coffee sent home every two or four weeks so that you can make it at home too. That is such a better context set than I could <laughs> Thank you. And so let's dig in on that last piece, the whole going online part. I mean, it sounded the way that you described the beginning of the company, it was just kind of one coffee shop opening up. Like how did the thought to go online come up? Was it, wow, this thing is growing so well and this is a big opportunity for us or people were, you know, pulling at them to say, oh, I I don't live near one or like I want to make, like how did that discussion come up? What was the strategy around going online? Yeah, so something that I think we take for granted working on software is that, Working in retail is really hard. Having something, especially something that's perishable, but something that's physical, like food or beverage, it takes a long time to open a cafe. And it takes even longer to properly manage inventory, stock the cafe, bring in the right amount of customers, and then build up the revenue to pay back the upfront capital you put into that cafe. So for us, scaling to an online business was actually a very efficient way to grow without having to go through all of the overhead that it takes to open a storefront. And again, if you have software, you might have started online. But with something like coffee, you don't. So for us, this was really a push to scale with better efficiency than what we could in retail, even though retail was our bread and butter business. And just to give you an example of another company that I think understands this well, Away Luggage. Do you know Away Luggage, the suitcase brand? Yeah, we just had the founder speak at our conference in Boston at Hypergrowth. She's amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the company. And I think Away Luggage, you know, realized that e-commerce was the right place for them to start selling a physical suitcase. And then if you've seen, they actually now have retail stores and they use them more as a showroom for customer acquisition, but it's not the main channel for selling their goods. And so I actually think that has become more of a shift in the past 10 years that didn't exist in the early 2000s, where it's more common to start selling your physical product online when you can. For us with coffee, we obviously started in the cafe. So yeah, so we decided that we wanted to sell coffee online and actually predating my time at Blue Bottle, Blue Bottle acquired a startup that was already doing this. And the startup was called Tonks Coffee, T-O-N-X. You might see t-shirts from fans from the early days, um, you know, out on the street, they were a much loved subscription coffee business. And they already would actually just prepare local coffees 
and send them in a subscription model to people around the US. And so we acquired this startup, which was pretty critical for a couple of reasons. The first was that there was a solid customer base of people who already wanted their coffee sent to them at home. So we had a whole batch of people we could learn from for you know why this was interesting to them, what kind of person might be interested in this offering. And you know they were already our customers because of this acquisition. And then the second piece is we acquired a team that had a lot of experience in managing and building tools for merchandise on an online platform. And this is something that I also think it's easy to forget with software that it's actually quite difficult to manage physical merchandise back of house after somebody completes a purchase on your website. And so we actually had a team that knew how to manage this inventory from order to preparation to shipping to delivery in a reliable way. And that allowed us to focus more on scale and more on the customer experience because we had already prepared the foundation that we needed to make this pretty easy for us. How critical do you think that acquisition was? How much time do you think it saved Blue Bottle to make that acquisition versus starting from scratch, hiring those people, then building up the online presence and figuring out all that stuff? Yeah, you know, I think it was a blessing because it accelerated our time to being able to launch the Blue Bottle subscription. I don't think it's the only path. My advice in this area would be if you do have a physical product and need to manage that inventory, find the experts who've done it before. They might have worked at Blue Bottle. Maybe they work at Stitch Fix. Maybe they work at Away Luggage who've done this before and get them on your team because there's so much knowledge and expertise that comes with doing that once. And there aren't very many people who have. So I do think finding an expert or two who are experienced in that area and can come in and join your team and help you is really critical in the early days. Got it. That sounds like some sound advice. So moving from decision that, all right, it's time to create this online presence. We're going to make the acquisition. Can you walk through the timeline and you know, you're on this team, you're building up these systems to get ready for that launch. What is the step-by-step look like that you know, someone like me who has never been in the spot before probably doesn't have any idea about? Yeah. So for us, the first thing that we did with the online experience is we tried to basically take everything that people loved about the retail cafes and translate that onto a website. So the everything from the color and the branding and the font that we use in the cafes, the ambiance of what it is to be inside one, we tried to translate that into the design of the website. The ways that we talk about the value of buying coffee in the cafes, we tried to translate to the website. And this seemed pretty obvious at the time because we knew that we had so many customers who loved us in a cafe, then naturally that should translate to then extending our relationship with them to being online. But this actually turned out not to be the case at all and was a really important lesson. For us specifically, something that we realized is if you want to make coffee every morning, for example, in your kitchen before you go to work, you're probably not the same customer who's also visiting the cafe every day. Mm -hmm. It's quite a different person. And so what we found, actually, the bulk of the work for us was understanding that the customer base online was not the same. And we really needed to invest in getting to know them and their needs and why they chose to buy from Blue Bottle so that we could provide them the right experience and also make sure we were 
conveying the value they were looking for in our purchase flows and in our product offerings. And that was an assumption that I think really surprised us and was the first big learning. Do you think that, so then once you found that out, did that alter the approach of let's replicate what we have in the store to online or was it, you know, the foundation is that we want to create an amazing experience. So we're just going to create an amazing experience that now caters to this and it looks and feels different or did the look and feel still remain the same, even though the persona and buyer is different? Yeah. So as we were thinking about this new realization, we didn't actually compromise on brand or on value prop or messaging. We really wanted to maintain the experience that is so important to the company and so important to its customers. What we did is focus a bit more on how to make sure our experience was easy to use for the customers that were coming through. So to give you an example, we had thought that we should focus first on the desktop web experience for our website. We have lots of beautiful photos and imagery that we could use to really convey the beauty of Blue Bottle and brand well on desktop web. But what we found is that a lot of our e-commerce customers um, were on the go. The reason they weren't shopping in the cafe is because they were already very busy. And for them, having a well-optimized and very functional mobile web experience was actually a lot more important. So we weren't changing the brand so much as responding better to feedback and being open to there being differences in the customer base than what we assumed up front. Yeah, I love that example because it's so easy. And this is with any kind of growth thing when you're considering a new channel building up for a new channel, we're, we're facing this now with one of our products, you know, you figure, yeah, you know, we're getting these kinds of customers from over here. These are the ones that are really successful. We're going to move to this new channel and kind of like translate that same sort of experience. But then we find like Drift Video, for example, it's a video tool. The people that sign up on their own from the Chrome Web Store is a very, very, very different type of experience than someone who is already familiar with the Drift product. Like, and then it really alters that type of prioritization after the fact. Yeah. And just to go deeper on that, I think sometimes when we talk about growth, we think first about email marketing or paid advertising or sending flyers via direct mail or referral programs. And it is really important to just remember that growth is so intertwined with product development itself. Because if you build a really great product and are very responsive to what your customers are looking for, then that is what's ultimately going to allow for good product market fit for good retention. And then on top of that, scaling becomes much easier. And I think this was a really important lesson at the time for us that the best thing you can do is build that great product. And then things like paid advertising are just icing on the cake. Okay, so you've got this up and online. You've you know figured out what the prioritization is going to look like. You're working on this mobile web experience. I want to zoom out for a second and think about you know how did you and Blue Bottle look at this and say this is how we're going to know if this thing is successful? Like, what are the data points that you then track when you move your channel to online? Yeah. So the way I think about growth of a subscription business like this, where people are coming online and signing up on their own, a self-serve business, I think is something you can apply beyond Blue Bottle, but is also something that we looked at 
And what I call this is weekly net subscribers. So it could be weekly net customers in you know a different kind of business. But for us, it was weekly net subscribers. What did this mean? It meant we were understanding on a weekly basis how many new subscribers we were bringing in and then how many came back to the platform. So though they weren't new, they were coming back to restart or increase frequency of their experience. And then those who churned out. And you can actually just sum those up and get an absolute number, which represents the net health of that subscription business. If you're bringing more people in, then are coming out. So this number was very important to us. What I like about using this style of metric is it gives you a better diagnostic on business health than just looking at something like top line customers or monthly active customers, because you can see how the average age of a customer or the changing cohorts of customers is affecting that number all in one. That was the most important metric to that business. The other for us was just your classic retention curve. So we wanted to understand for different sets of subscribers who joined over time, how many of them were still active after one month or six or 12 or 24. And then understand also why there would be variance over time. So to give you an example, if we released a new type of coffee and sent it to everybody who joined in July, and then there was a much higher churn-off from those users in the first three months, then we could actually take away from that, okay, let's understand if this type of coffee was not the right type for our customer base and make sure that we understand and respond to the feedback we got on the flavor or type of coffee so that we don't offer it again. So that was really important to us too. Yeah, and I love this because it's very similar to like your normal SaaS or software metrics, right? You have your net growth, you have your retention, you have a little bit more of variable with that because with software, you're always delivering, I mean, presumably you're always delivering a very, very similar piece of software with something like coffee. The coffee, like you were saying, could taste very different. How did you think about benchmarks and what good looked like? Because I mean, I could tap a bunch of people on the shoulder in the SaaS world and say, hey, or, you know, just Google, like, what is good, you know, one month retention for this type of software and get some answers on that? How did you think about what good looked like? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's, it's different. Um, you find other small businesses, other e-commerce businesses, other food and beverage businesses and ask. There were fewer companies to talk to but there were still some out there. And so we would just consult with other businesses to understand what good looked like and learning share a lot. And I actually found that the collaboration among smaller, similar businesses in that space was really quite amazing and really helped us and those other teams because we were able to talk through what we were facing, even if there were fewer companies in that space. Yeah, I really think it was quite similar. I also think to an earlier point we discussed, Bringing in folks who had done this before was quite helpful. An area where we really benefited from that is the out-of-box experience, which is basically that sensation when you know a box arrives at your door and you open it and you see a flyer or some packaging or a message from the business and you have a delightful moment as a customer. And this is something that's so specific to physical products, but is so important and very hard to A-B test, unlike something on your website or something core to your actual product features. So we learned a lot from people who had experience in the space on what it meant to actually delight a customer with that out-of-box experience and deliver something that really made them 
happy and made them want to keep ordering. Yeah, that part's so interesting because like you said, how do you A-B test? I mean, you could A-B test it, but then I'm guessing there's all sorts of logistical waterfalls of, all right, you know, we got to separate these and then have the packaging be different and maybe that's not easy. And how did you think about testing that physical stuff? Was it, you know, this month we're going to run with this style or, yeah, what did that look like? So it's very hard to actually change the physical packages. So in an ideal world, you would take half of your customer base and send them something different. But if you're printing flyers or boxes, for example, and you want the actual box to look different, that could be pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So what we would do instead is rely a lot more on user research because then we could work with a small set of customers and understand something with them one-on-one in person and then use that to inform decision-making. It's not quite as ideal as an A-B test, but I do think it ended up being equally effective for us and was also a lot less expensive than having to deploy different kinds of box experiences and physical products. Yeah. And how did you, and maybe the answer is through those user interviews that you mentioned, how did you measure when it wasn't working? Because I imagine that you have some lagging indicators, which are, you know, how many people cancel, how many people continue subscribing, what does that cohort look like? But how do you catch that sooner when a bunch of people got a box and they were like, nah, you know, you're not going to find out again because maybe they're not going to cancel for three weeks because they just didn't get around to it till then. How'd you think of that feedback loop? Yeah, something that we ended up adding into our cancellation flow is a very clear survey about why you canceled. And then we actually had our customer support team pretty quickly triage and compile results on why people would leave or even why they would reach out to customer support if they didn't reach or decide to cancel, but had some sort of issue. And so that was a proxy that we would use to help understand if something wasn't going well. That was somewhat helpful, but you're right. It was quite hard to know if something resonated well with people. And we tended to have a little bit of a delay on metrics like churn because it takes a little bit of time to really understand how something landed with customers. So that was definitely hard. One thing that we did start doing, which was helpful, is ensuring that our shipping times were reliable so that we could control for factors like the package never showed up or the package was damaged or it came a couple days late. Because those were things that if we could make consistent, then we knew that other factors like box design or coffee flavor were more likely Mm -hmm. to be the variable that was causing customers to be less happy. Right. So really, really tighten up on all the things that can be as consistent as possible. And then you try to isolate the variables. Yeah, exactly. Cool. I would love to just get a sense from you what you think the future looks like for retail moving online. Are we going to see a lot more retail build up online presences or are more people going to like shut down their retail? Like I would imagine, and you know, correct me, you don't have to correct me if I'm wrong because it's probably privileged information, but I would imagine that as you had mentioned, one of the benefits of moving from retail to online is the growth and the scale. And and so part of it is almost this question of, all right, well, if you're moving from retail and then it works when you go online and it's working really well, how much value does the retail really have aside from like brand awareness? And I don't know, I, I would just love to, to get your take on the high level of all that. 
Yeah, this is a very important question. I think the reason it's so important is if you're starting a business and choosing between e-commerce and retail, that can be a very intimidating choice. And there are companies that have gone both ways. Outdoor Voices, do you know the Athleisure Wear brand? I am not familiar. So it's similar to Lululemon. It is now very popular and has a strong social media brand and presence. And so I think most Outdoor Voices customers actually think it started online. It actually was retail first, similar to Blue Bottle. So it started about six years ago. It had a storefront in Austin about five years ago. And then it really took off online in the past two years. The reason I like this example is I think it's a great example of business with physical goods that started with retail, but then saw an opportunity to scale on e-commerce and went for it and really doubled down. You should check out their website. It's really well done. And I think the e-commerce experience has now become really the core of the business and is a great example of how they were able to shift with the times and identify the opportunity. But that's not to say that retail is going away. There is definitely still a place for it. There are some obvious examples like a coffee experience where being in person will always be different to ordering something online. But retail can also be used as an awareness or showroom component to bringing more customers in or bringing them back or even converting someone who'd already heard about your brand. And Away, as I said earlier, is a good example of this. I think one other good example is Glossier, which is a hugely successful e-commerce business and is now opening retail fronts that are really a showroom where you can try the product. Because there are some things like makeup or athleisure wear where it's quite helpful to experience it in person before you make the purchase. And in that case, I think Glossier actually realized that retail would be additive to just having an e-commerce presence. So altogether, I think we'll continue to see that there's more interaction between the two. My general advice to somebody who's interested in starting a company in the space would be to start online because it will be a more efficient way to get off the ground. But it really depends on the product you have. Yeah, I love those examples. And it makes me think of a couple others that come to mind. Tesla, for example, you're not going to walk into a Tesla shop and then drive away with a car, but you can go test drive it and you know feel out what it looks like and then place your order online. Another another one that also comes to mind are mattress companies. Like I think Casper and Tuft & Needle, those are starting to open up those shops where you can go lay down on them. But like you said, primarily they started online because that's a much easier way to scale it. And then once they reach a critical mass, it's like, all right, let's help get ourselves more customers by giving them a way to experience this thing that is like really hard to tangibly understand when you're looking at it online, like Blue Bottle. I haven't had Blue Bottle in a few years now. And so I can look at it online as much as I want and have a sense of what it'll taste like. But it's very, very different than walking into a place and actually tasting it. Exactly. And I actually think there's one other category of business that's really interesting right now that's toggling between retail and online and it's furniture. So you might have heard of some of the startups that are popping up recently. Oliver Space is one of them that offers a subscription for monthly rental on furniture. And with that kind of business, I think it's quite interesting to think about where you go first. Do you start online? Do you start with a retail showroom? Because something like furniture, similar to a Tesla, 
is a big investment and something that you preferably would like to see in person, but it may take you time to make the decision. So it will be interesting to see how that category takes off as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. There's just so many things that companies are starting to experiment with, with how you treat those two different things and the type of experience that they offer. I I just think it's so cool. Totally. And you know, one last thing I'll say on this, I know we are all increasingly dependent on ordering from Amazon, but as we've just talked about, there are many examples of where that customer experience will be the thing to convert you. We know that follow-ups and reminding people in the world of growth about something they might be interested in is one of the best ways to bring them back and to convert them as a customer. And so I don't see Amazon being able to replace that component of the experience, which makes me optimistic that while some commodity items can be ordered over Amazon, there's always going to be this important retail component, especially for brands that really focus on getting to know their customer. Yep. Yeah, I love that. The experience really is something that a third party can't provide the way that you could if you kind of own that whole system. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining. This was this is great. I learned a bunch. I know our listeners have as well. So thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so for everyone else listening, as always, thank you so much for doing so. Really do appreciate you tuning in. If you have any questions, feedback, whatever it might be, my email is mattatrift.com. Shoot me a note. If you're a fan, I would super appreciate a review and I will catch you on the next episode. All right. See ya.